Hello and welcome. My name is Mike Sherbin. I'm the pastor at Watch It Baptist Church. You're with us at WBC Online and we're here for our next part, our third part in our series called Being Church. On this occasion, having looked previously at uh, unity and depending and giving, we're now looking at communion. This is a, a key part of what we do when we gather, some ways of why we gather. And it's important that we understand what we're doing when we get together and celebrate in this way. Now, I'm not going to do uh, a big sort of expression of historical understandings of communion. I may dip a little bit into that. But in the main, we're just going to look at some of those sort of biblical narrative behind communion and have a think about what it is that we that we mean when we take part in this uh, special um, activity that we do together. Before we go any further, though, we're going to pray. Let's pray together. Lord, be near to us. Inspire us by your spirit. Remind us of the amazing work of your son, Jesus. Give us understanding and inspiration. Be tender with us as we explore this too. Amen. I wanted to quote as we begin from 1 Peter 1 verse 3, which says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The thing about communion is it tells a story and a story that Jesus wanted us to remember. And importantly, knowing that we are humanity and therefore every bit as much physical beings as any other kind of being, Jesus gave us a physical way to remember this thing that he felt was really important for us to remember. Now, I want to have a quick look at six questions really, really quickly at six questions. Um, as we begin, uh, and they are these. Number one, what is communion? And the answer, I think, is it's a mystery. And it's okay for it to be a mystery. The contemporary world, the post-Enlightenment world, the last sort of 200 years of, of Western life, has really been uh, more and more obsessed with the idea that there are answers to be found and we should be finding them. And I don't think that our spiritual life needs to play into that narrative at all. I think we're allowed to say mysteries are okay, particularly when they involve God, because so much of what God is, is a mystery. So community is a mystery in as much as something happens in it, which is beyond our control or understanding. It's a, a, it's a thing the spirit does as we engage in this activity. And it's also a physical means of remembering. So what we do at communion, and, and by communion I'm just meeting this thing that we do with bread and wine quite typically uh, as part of a service when we gather on a Sunday. Um, so it's a mystery but it's also a physical means of remembering something and it's a celebration as well. We know it's a celebration because the use of wine indicates that there's something to be celebrated. This is a, a, a standard theme um, through biblical language that wine is associated with celebration. That's question one. Question two, why do we do communion? Well, I think there are two reasons. You could say it's just because we're commanded to. So Jesus says, um, do this whenever you eat and drink in remembrance of me. He says to do it so we should. And that's, that is a good reason, uh, best of reasons. But I think it's also an invitation. 
So we, we take part in it because it's a command, but we also take part in it because we recognise the invitation that Jesus gives to us to take part in something when we do this. Question three, what happens in communion? And I think the answer to that is we remember, we come before God and enter his presence and we honour each other as well as, as fellow disciples, as those who participate in the life of the people of God. Uh, why do we do it the way we do it is question four. Well, I, I think there are, there are sort of two answers to that too. I think part of it is that we recognise something important about the everyday in it. So significantly, Jesus used everyday bread and wine in order for this to, in order to set this up, this um, expression of remembering. Uh, so the everydayness is part of the reason why it's done how it is done. And the other, I think, is that it's something that everyone can be welcome to and take part in. Um, certainly when you think back to the the Last Supper, as it's, as it's called, the description of how Jesus gets his gets himself together with his friends and they celebrate this Passover meal. Um, we are, we're used to, aren't we, this uh, the famous um, painting of the Last Supper where you've got 13 people all visible at the same time and are using half the available table. Um, uh, but the probability is that there were definitely more than 13 people there because it was somebody else's home so they probably would have been part of doing it with some other people as well. I can't promise that's the case but the assumption that it was just 13 people is just an assumption. There's there's not nothing particularly to back it up. We're only saying that because nobody else is mentioned um, that must mean there were only 13 people there when actually we know that, that there was a bigger group that spent time with Jesus. Women who supported him financially and members of the disciples family who were around as well um, and that's, that's in addition to um, those who may, may well quite probably would have been in the house uh, where Jesus went in order to celebrate this meal. Um, so that's four. That's number five is who is communion for? Now this is important so church history hasn't always held up well on this front. There were certainly times when um, unless you were clergy you could only receive the wine and not the bread um, and there certainly have been situations in the church's more recent past over the last couple of hundred years where some traditions have said that you can't be part of communion unless you are in membership at a church already and so it wasn't part of the regular service it was added on at the end later um, but, but actually I would say particularly drawing on the way Jesus teaches in the gospels that, that communion is for anyone who wants to come and meet with Jesus for any reason at any point in their journey of getting to know him. Uh, and my sixth one is what does God do in communion? And I think the answer is he turns up. Whether he does that um, in a way that's always tangible it's a different question but as, as I said with the first question with it being a mystery I think there is something distinctive and special about how the Holy Spirit is involved in this which is beyond my comprehension but which I have experienced myself. There's a sense in which God is present. He can't be any more present than he always is, but there's something distinctive or particular about his presence in communion. God turns up when we honour this instruction and, and respond to this invitation when we RSVP and take part in communion. There is a sort of an additional thought, which is, um, what's the reason for all of this? And Because you, you can take it apart in those six questions, but I think the thing that um, the thing that lies behind it all 
is that the Father loves us. And it's by communion that we remember Jesus' sacrificial action to bring us closer to God. So we're remembering the means by which we can draw close to God and be in his presence. I think if if those coming to communion were to take nothing else away from it, that's the thing I'd want them to remember. You're here because Jesus has made it possible for you to share God's presence. And that's what you're enjoying. Importantly, communion is not a means of forgiveness. Turning up at it, eating bread and wine, um, praying prayers with others doesn't mean you are forgiven, doesn't mean you are saved. It doesn't mean you are more acceptable to Jesus or any of those things. There is, um, it, it's not a, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not some kind of magic initiation um, ritual. Um, it, it is about remembrance, uh, but it doesn't by itself provide forgiveness. Communion is uh, a command to remember. In communion, there is also a warning, uh, and we get this particularly through Paul's description of it in 1 Corinthians 11, but we also get that from Jesus' teaching about worship too. There's a warning to participate well, and the wellness of that participation has to do with um, how we are engaging with others who are participating as well, or who know that they are part of God's people as well. It's also the invitation bit. It's also an invitation towards something for the future. So it's it's an invitation that, to celebrate what's to come. So Jesus has begun this amazing process of, of fulfilling uh, the intention of creation and that will reach its ultimate resolution with Jesus' return. And part of what we're doing is we're celebrating that that return is as much as a reality as the crucifixion is, as the cross story is. So we cannot earn a place at Jesus' table, but we can respect it, and we should. And we respect anyone else who comes to that table as well. We respect them because that's just a healthy way to treat people anyway, but we particularly respect those who are coming because they recognise something of who Jesus is and what he's done and something of the Father's invitation or something of the movement of the Spirit. They're there for a reason. And so we respect that reason, recognising that God is at work in communion, whether we can see it or not. The only warning, I think I've said this already, but the only warning that comes with communion is a warning about our togetherness and the effectiveness of our togetherness, the quality of our relationships with one another. Jesus says, if you're going up to worship and you remember something that you have against somebody else, go and put that right. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 uh, he says one should examine oneself ahead of taking part in um, in a communion meal. But if you look at the context of him saying that, he's not saying examine yourself for generic sense of sinfulness, although that's always a good thing to do and confession is always worthwhile. But the context of that instruction is about the quality of the relationships that you have with others in the church, that, that you recognise and live out your togetherness with them by the way you go about being part of communion. He's actually particularly picking up on the idea that, that very often the more wealthy people would turn up, um, take part in communion, eat and drink together, and then poorer people who might turn up later would find there was nothing left for them to have. Um, so there was a sense of taking responsibility for your relationships within the church that, that Paul is driving at in 1 Corinthians 11. So that's a quick blast through those initial questions and some of those initial perspectives.
the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to put up three readings um, on the screen. They're all from Mark 14 uh, and they're verses 12 to 16, 17 to 21 and 22 to 26. So it's, it's kind of one reading, but I, I want to break it up into those three sections and just give you a chance to read that. So there's an element here of recognising something of the past. The communion's role includes something about the past. So we're remembering and being thankful. We mark something that's been done for us. There is a close connection between communion and Passover, that, that Jewish festival that celebrates um, the way in which Jesus, the way in which um, God brought his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of um, bondage, uh, out of being tied and, and held down and restricted uh, in that place, unable to worship freely, unable to be the people of God in the way that that was intended. At the Passover, that ancient story was remembered, and it's a, a story of liberation from that slavery. It's a, it's a story of a sacrificed lamb that brought life to God's people, and there's an echo of that, a very strong echo of that uh, in Jesus. There's a story of hope and an invitation to enter into, be part of, be one of the recipients of a promise uh, that God gave that, that his people would be able to be free and to live uh, in a promised land. And the story of God's presence, every step of the journey, he went with them. So in John 1, 29, we hear Jesus referred to as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's that really close and specific link between those two things. The deliberate connection is in play. So when Jesus first broke bread and poured wine, he was inviting us to remember the new rescue, like the old one, but different and better. And Hebrews will tell you lots about how Jesus is like the old things, but better. This new rescue that death and resurrection would bring, the new rescue that the sacrificial work of the cross would make possible. The one who died is the same as the one who rose and lived. So Jesus, although the story is ancient, Jesus was killed. He gave himself up on the cross. He, out of love, put his own life at risk and ultimately died that we might have a reconnection with God, that our sins might be, our mess, the mess that we make might be put right, that the right, the rightness of God might be something we get to share. Um, and exactly the mechanics of how that works is for another time. But this is what we're remembering. Um, and we recognise this living presence as well, that, that although that death and resurrection story is very old, the resurrected Jesus is still alive today. I'm just going to give us uh, a moment to hear a little, a little bit of a song called Remember by Tim Hughes, uh, because I think it's a really helpful way of engaging with this sense of remembering what Jesus has done for us.
uh, we're going to have a look at uh, another reading. It's from 1 Corinthians 11 this time. Um, we're going to use verses 17 all the way through to 29 and then verses 33 and 34. And I'm just going to put them up on the screen for you to read. If you're in a group, perhaps somebody would like to read them off the screen as we go. Okay, it's important to think about communion as something for the now, for the present moment. It's a means of grace. Now, I said earlier that communion doesn't can't bring about or trigger forgiveness, and that's true. But there is something also in the way in which the Spirit of God inhabits communion that means that there is something of, of God's generousness, his generous character, his giving to us of things that we don't deserve and haven't earned, that, that does take place. I think perhaps for me, I'm too often um, focused a bit more on, on the format of how communion is happening, that I don't always make space or allow room for the Holy Spirit to, to really be stirring up my heart, to be shuffling with how I'm thinking and, and being part of that so that I might embrace um, his presence with me as I as I take part in this. We're marking something that's been given, being given to us, not just something that was done ages ago, but something that is being given now. So um, we're able to claim a sense of being right with God and being clean with God because of what Jesus has done. So we don't just remember something that happened a long time ago. We claim something that is happening now that we're able to take hold of right now. All that stuff in the Bible about communion and, and that one warning um, about being right with the others who are in uh, who are in your fellowship or who you know those who you might be not on good terms with, even if they're not in your congregation. That's about being right and about being clean, and and that cleanness is something that we're able to access because of Jesus' death on the cross. Paul's emphasis was on clean relationships. Jesus gave communion to the church. Uh, and, and we are the body of Christ, and that means behaving as if we are the body of Christ. Jesus talks in Matthew 5 um, about putting things right with others on the way to the altar. I've just mentioned it, but it is. It's in Matthew 5, 23 to 24. It's worth having a look at. So before we get to the point of engaging with communion, we, uh, we anticipate that we're going to have an encounter with Jesus. And we think, well, if I'm going to encounter Jesus, how can I, how can I be as right as I can be? So it's a thing of immediate nowness. It's a thing about the present. And that means that that we look to take hold of the opportunities that come with it. So we don't believe that Jesus' bread becomes, sorry, that, that the bread becomes Jesus' body or that the wine becomes Jesus' blood. But those representational symbols are important because they place us in the story. They make us a participant in how in what Jesus is trying to accomplish, which is to, to draw us closer to him, to welcome us back to the presence of God, to put us right so that we can be in that place. Being in the present also means thinking about why we use what we use. So we use everyday things. So it's important to remember that um, bread and wine were everyday. So wine was much more likely to be drunk um, in New Testament times, partly because um, water sources weren't as reliably clean 
they, there were clean water sources and they were definitely used but you would use wine because, because there was no um there was no squash there was no diet coke there was no you know so it, you often, often would water it down but there was a lot of wine around so it was an everyday drink but it was also a drink of celebration um and and bread too just an, an everyday everyday thing so that it was as easy as possible uh, to take part in this um, remembering process we use everyday things and we invite anyone who wants to meet Jesus they don't have to qualify because we don't qualify to meet with Jesus either we simply say if you want to be here and you want to meet Jesus then communion and remembering and being part of something that the Holy Spirit is involved with all of that is for you Let's have a look at uh, a third and final set of verses. This time, four readings from different uh, books, from Isaiah and Matthew and Acts and Revelation, and they'll be on the screen next. So there is something in communion about the future as well, a future um, where creation is fulfilled, where everything that God intended to be is made right. Ultimately, a loss of the book of Revelation is, is picture language that describes and, and reassures um, those first and second century um, disciples that no matter how hard the persecution was, these things would be put right. Jesus would return. And all those oppressive and persecuting forces would be dealt with and all those who had suffered uh, would be renewed. There is a feast to come, a feast of welcome into the fulfilled kingdom of God. And so bread and wine represents what that feast might be like for the future too. We mark something that reminds us of a promise that Jesus prepares, prepares a place for us with him. It's interesting that um, that we have this image in the original story of the communion event, the Last Supper event, that Jesus washes his disciples feet. Now he does this in order to demonstrate um, that service is important and that nobody who wants to follow Jesus will lord it over anybody else but will be willing to do humble things in order to serve others in Jesus name. But it does put me in mind a little bit of coming into the presence of God and, and having your sandals off. Um, Moses in, in Exodus 2, I think, might be 3. Um, it could be 1, I can't remember. Uh, but Moses is told, as he encounters God in the burning bush, to take off his sandals because where he's standing is holy ground. And that simply means that to be in the presence of God is to be somewhere holy. It's the reason why there was a real limit on how far ordinary Israelite people could get um, in the tent of meeting in the tabernacle in the Old Testament because to be in the Holy of Holies was to be right in God's presence and that was, uh, that was a big deal. So although Jesus washing his disciples feet wasn't about taking off his sandals because you're in the holy ground it does always remind me of that and I think there is something important about recognising that when we come to communion we're coming into a place of holiness because God is there and welcomes us.
Finally, I just want to use um, a quote from uh, a, a Christian writer called Brennan Manning uh, from his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, because I think that that when it's all said and done, communion is a is an activity, is an opportunity um, for us to fall back on some astonishing truths about how the Father works and what Jesus has done and why he's done it. So I'm just going to read a couple of things. They don't quite belong together, but they do sort of flow. The gospel declares that no matter how dutiful or prayerful we are, we cannot save ourselves. What Jesus did for us was sufficient because Jesus comes not for the super spiritual, but for the wobbly and the weak need who know they don't have it all together and who are not too proud to accept the handout of amazing grace. We've had a little look through some of our understanding of communion. My hope is that it's perhaps reminded you of something or brought something to life. And I hope too that this means that the next time that you come to communion, you'll feel a bit better prepared, a bit more self-aware about what you're coming to and why you're coming to it. It's important that we're able to do this. I, you know, and my understanding of communion is long-standing and pretty decent, but I still need this reminder from time to time that this is special and important and wonderful and a celebration. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all that came with your arrival on earth, with your dependence as a baby, your determination uh, in teaching, your radical approach, your humility and your tenderness, and also your example. But perhaps most of all, as we think about communion, we remember your sacrifice and your willingness to do things that was so hard to do because you wanted the outcome of our presence with you and your Father and the Spirit. Would you help us to let that hit home, to enjoy it, to celebrate all that you've done, to take it seriously and to enjoy one another's company as we do so. Amen. Question one is prompted by another quote from Brennan Manning. He writes this. It is not objective proof of God's existence that we want, but the experience of God's presence. That is the miracle we are really after. And that is also, I think, the miracle that we really get. The wonderful thing about communion is that it is an expression of our recognition that we have no right to God's grace, to God's kindness, but that he has provided it and we get to accept it. Where's the question in this? Well, really, it's about how you interact, how I interact with grace. So the question is this. What are the obstacles that you have that stop you from accepting that God's grace really is unconditional? 
what makes you th assume that God might must certainly want something from you? Can you really accept that grace is free and is all good? Question two. I'm again going to borrow uh, a Brennan Manning quote as I frame this question. The kingdom, he writes, is not an exclusive, well-trimmed suburb with snobbish rules about who can live there. No, it is for a larger, homelier, less self-conscious cast of people who understand they are sinners because they have experienced the yaw and pitch of moral struggle. I'm going to invite you to think about the things that bother you about your own life. And I think really the sins that you keep going back to, the mistakes you keep making, the attitudes that you fall back to, even though you kind of know they're not the right attitudes to have. And then to take that self-awareness and go armed with it to think about um, how we welcome others into communion, how we welcome others to a place where they can recognise and own their own need for Jesus, their own awareness of their own sin, um, and, to, and to be part of Jesus' welcome to all who might seek him. I'm not sure I've exactly asked the question there. Perhaps the question is, um, how can you welcome others to join in in communion when we gather? Question three. The forerunner of communion is a meal that Jesus had with his disciples and possibly other people too. Our normal experience of communion in churches today is a, a table with bread and wine and, and nothing else on it. In our case, we add some biscuits and grapes for good reason. The question is, how might we extend our experience of communion to include a whole meal? and not just bread and wine how can we how can we make a, a time of prayer and praise weave right through our time together in order to make communion a whole experience about gathering to share a meal thank you so much for being with us for this part this third part uh, of being church on communion and I look forward to catching up with you soon uh, to talk about it. And if not before, then to catch you again next time we're looking at uh, when we're looking at part four. Uh, and uh, I look forward to catching up with you then, if not before. Take care and God bless.